Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. In case you're unaware, today is National Back to School Prep Day, which is followed tomorrow by National Roller Coaster Day. And in no other year can I think of two holidays that belong together more. The stress of back to school has most definitely been a roller coaster as parents struggle to decide between online or in-person learning or some hybrid of both and how that all works together with their jobs. We'll be talking a lot about education in the coming months, but for today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Elizabeth May at the top of the hour for a longer than usual interview, but one that's well worth your time. Elizabeth and I discuss what she feels should be a top priority for us right now in terms of a government focus, why more women need to get into politics, and some of the ways you can jump in right now to start being the change you want to see. Anne Brody has been off on holiday the last two weeks as I took a break too, but the entertainment industry is not showing any signs of slowing down. Anne has been busy reviewing a ton of new releases and joins me with a few new ones today that she says you absolutely can't miss, including one that hit a little too close to home for me. While our travel opportunities may not be as robust as they once were, they're still there. Carolyn Ray from Journey Woman joins me to share the results of a recent survey she conducted and some thoughts on travel in her own backyard. If you'd asked someone a year ago what they thought 2020's most contentious issue would be, they likely wouldn't have suggested masks. Yet, here we are. I speak with Hilary Bergseeker, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Waterloo, about the resistance to mask wearing and how to change minds without shaming people. Finally, COVID-19, like everything else, is dividing the rich from the poor who are blocks apart but worlds away. I'm joined by Brian Warren and Michelle Ray from Start to Finish, whose mission it is to break the cycle of child poverty by providing ongoing educational support to Canada's at-risk children throughout their school years, nurturing mind, body, and social health so they are empowered to succeed and become role models for change. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. Let's get started with what she said on 105.9 The Region right now. Elizabeth May is the parliamentary leader of the Green Party of Canada and member of parliament representing the southern Vancouver Island riding of Saanich Gulf Islands. She is one of Canada's most respected environmentalists and with over a decade of experience navigating politics in Canada, she is also a model for women who want to jump into a life of public service. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. It is such an honor to have you join me today. Oh, thanks, Candice. It's fun to be with you, although COVID with you, everybody knows we're all Zoomed out. Here we are. Yeah, I honestly just did an interview the other day with a woman about Zoom fatigue. We're all feeling that a little bit. Um, So we're clearly in tumultuous times here. We're staring at the sort of this perfect storm of environmental distress and civil unrest, economic upset. Um, there's a lot of competing priorities. So when you look out over this landscape, what do you feel needs to be sort of our first priority? That's a great question. 
Um, I'm working right now trying to figure out how we make sure that our schools are safe and all of our kids can go back to school. I'm really uh, concerned that we're seeing without childcare being adequate across Canada, without schools being five days a week, a lot of parents and particularly women aren't going to be able to get back in the workforce, which has a th- which is a threat to our economy, a threat to women's rights that have been achieved over all these years and also interrupts our kids' education. So I work on things as they come to me and it's not particularly disciplined in terms of a hierarchy of things that need attention. Uh, number, you know, we always need to be mindful that we're in a climate emergency, and the climate emergency is far a far larger threat to this country and to a uh, human civilization than COVID. But COVID is here right now and close to us, and we we are out, we're not out of the woods yet. So I'd have to say, right now, if you ask me, number one priority: public health and evidence-based decision making based on the science leads us right into why. We can't take our eye off the ball on climate. We have to do both of those things at the same time. And so they're both tied up in health, but public health, and we have to we have to be careful that we don't, as a country, make any mistakes that result in us looking more like Italy than like Taiwan. I mean, we this has got to be a upfront top priority. I agree, and you know, I, I my concern is, and so I, because you know, I know the environment is your first love. Um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of, are we turning back the clock in terms of the progress we've made with things? You know, suddenly we're plastic bags all over the place. We've got PPP, PPE everywhere. Yeah. You know, are we turning back the clock a little in our response to this pandemic? Well, I certainly wouldn't say that we need to hold back on PPE. We need it. Right. I do think we need to have a rethink because a lot of the reason, and I've talked to people for years about this in the healthcare sector, the cuts to our healthcare system back in the early 90s when Paul Martin was Minister of Finance and had to slay the deficit. One of the things that happened because of that was cuts in healthcare led to a lot of hospitals figuring, well, where can we save money? Well, we can save money by not having our own janitorial staff. We'll have more people on contract. So what ended up happening is we ended up relying a lot more in the healthcare sector on throwaway items. That's not to say that we couldn't go back to a time where, number one, we had more access to our own PPE in local supply chains, so we weren't dependent on trying to buy it in a global market frenzy, which is, I mean, the minister responsible for this, Anita Anand, talks to us as MPs about what it's like to be out there trying to bid on millions of masks and being beaten out by another country. And there's nothing wrong with reusable cloth masks. We need to be thinking about this in a, in a larger frame of what does this look like post-pandemic. We clearly need to have more self-sufficiency in healthcare PPE. We, we all now know it, personal protective equipment. Nurses used to have uniforms that were washed in a, in a hospital laundry setting at high temperatures. That got cut out. And that's one of the reasons that we now see things like C. difficile in our hospitals. We have unique and dangerous um, diseases that are created in the hospital environment, and largely because, go back to the cuts, to the janitorial services, and the decision that everything could be throwaway, so nothing needed to be quite as sterile as it used to be. Okay, so if we unpack all this, we can say, no, we don't want to go backwards on making sure we're not using plastic bags and throw away utensils, et cetera, et cetera. People carry their own utensils to a takeout facility and the the takeaway box is made of materials that are compostable. We're not going backwards. 
but we are COVID compliant. So there's, there's solutions through this, but obviously in the panic and the initial round of decisions that were taken in March, April, and May, I wasn't going around saying don't use plastic because the priority immediately was flatten the curve. When we adopt an attitude that says, and I think this is where we're headed, we're going to be living with this pandemic for some time, then you need to start rethinking things. And what can we carry ourselves to a takeout facility, our own utensils? And can we be allowed to make sure that we take away cartons that are themselves not plastic? The bigger picture, of course, is the climate crisis. And we are seeing greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere continue to rise even as we're not flying, we're not driving nearly as much. So we also need to look at the structural issues of the climate crisis and make sure that when we come out of pandemic, we don't think, okay, we've got to restart the economy. We've got to get those smokestacks, you know, belching out the smoke because that shows our economy is going. We've got to, in a post-pandemic recovery, focus our government and public resources on those things that restart the economy while reducing greenhouse gases, such as major investments in renewable energy, major investments in our built infrastructure, our homes and buildings, so that they don't waste energy. The, these are things we can do. They're not, they're not rocket science, but we have to keep them in mind so we don't make a mistake. A measured response. And, you know, I was recently reading this article uh, about, you know, the best coronavirus responses around the world have been from women-led countries, female-led countries, which is part of the reason I want to talk to you, because I really feel we need more women in politics in Canada. Oh, we do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sadly, just before I, I we started this interview, I went to just look it up quickly, and we've only had 13 women in the course of our history sort of serve as a first minister. That's crazy to me. So what do you well, think are the biggest hurdles for women? Like, why well, do you think we don't have enough? Well, another analysis from where you started this question, which I think is so cool, you look at Jacinda Ardern. Angela Merkel, the women around the world in the women-led countries have something else in common besides a good COVID response. They all have electoral systems that are built on fairness. Mm -hmm. So every single country in the world with a woman leader who's handled COVID well is in a country where the electoral system is based on proportional representation. And countries with proportional representation elect more women always. And that's just a statistical reality. So what does that look like for Canada? If Justin Trudeau had kept his promise in 2015, we would have gone through a 2019 election that did not have baked in unfairness. When you have a system that says the percentage vote that that party got means that when you look at your parliament, there's that same percentage of MPs sitting there. That's what proportional representation looks like. So for people watching, if you think about the vote the Green Party got in 2019, we got over a million votes, 1.1 million around there. I think the Bloc Québécois got 1.3 million. So they got more votes than we did, but by not that big a margin. We have three MPs. They have 30. So it's a very big difference when all your votes are concentrated in one region. So our current voting system of first past the post encourages and gives oxygen to parties that are about division or regionalism. So Reform Party got its start and did really well right out the gate because it could take every seat in Alberta, whereas the Bloc Québécois only runs in Quebec. So voting systems really matter in terms of getting women elected. The, the other thing, of course, is just encouraging women to run. And this is something I do a lot. I was really pleased that we had, I think it was 40% of the candidates, the last couple of elections for the Green Party have been women. 
uh, we are the first elected caucus with more women than men. There are Jenica Atwin from Fredericton and I, plus Paul Manley. So we are a caucus of two-thirds women. Of course, it used to be 100% women when I was there by myself, but I wouldn't exactly <laughs> – that doesn't make any history. But we not only run women, we want to elect women. And that's something other parties, sometimes they'll get their statistics up there, but the best ridings where you're most likely to elect people – uh, will still in some parties go to male candidates. So it, getting involved in politics and for women watching and thinking about it, it is a hard world still. It's not a place where if you have a thin skin, uh, the, the social media stuff is the worst. Being attacked on Twitter, you have to be able to say it doesn't matter. Unfortunately, until those platforms are properly regulated, which they should be, they're set up to allow a lot of abuse and that should not be allowed. I agree. And, you know, and I think that a lot of women don't get involved in politics for those very reasons is that, you know, it's that fear of being attacked online, uh, having their families attacked and so on. So what would you say to a woman, though, who wants to get involved? What would you say to her if today she's listening and she's thinking, I'm going to go and I'm going to run for MP in my riding? I'd say go for it. Uh, the first thing, of course, is to sort of figure out what party you're interested in. I mean, we have one MP right now who's an independent, who, of course, is Jody Wilson-Raybould, who was elected as an independent, but that's very hard to do. So I'd say, in general, your first step is going to be, which of the available political parties out there as options appeals to me and my values? Then get involved with that party. Uh, there isn't a political party in the in the world that isn't happy to see a new member. And most political parties are like Greens saying, oh, a smart woman who wants to run? Yahoo, okay. So you'll find yourself embraced pretty quickly. It's important to actually, you know, be prepared to be volunteering for a while, maybe help another candidate the first time out. But don't be shy. Absolutely jump in with both feet and let people know that you're around and what your background is and what you would like to contribute to the political life of your community, your province or your country by running for office. So if there's women, there are women listening right now and they want to jump in and they would like to join the Green Party. Yeah, uh, it's a great time to join. We're, <laughs> we, we have a leadership race going on. So it's one person, one vote, and you can join for 10 bucks and then you vote. And we now have nine candidates. So of the nine candidates, five non-male, and I say non-male because one of the candidates is non-binary and pan, and they prefer to be referred to as a feminized candidate who's not male. But okay, so five non-men and four men in the candidacy and a real diverse group of people, very interesting, lots of interesting professional background. And so the next leader of the Green Party of Canada might be a, a woman again. And I'd sure welcome that because otherwise all the other leaders are men. I'm not endorsing anyone in the race. The men are also good choices. So it, now's a good time to join. And if you were thinking of wanting to run, not only look at what party interests you, but if the Green Party interests you, look at the candidates running for leadership and offer to help one of their campaigns. It's a very opportune moment to engage with the party. It's, it's weird to have a leadership race in pandemic no gatherings in person or virtually no gatherings in person. But those candidates running are running real campaigns and they need volunteers. So that's a great way to get involved. Right. It's important to remember it's not just running for office. It's it's being involved in the process of the decision making and having a, vo having a voice. So just getting involved at that level is important as well. Yeah. And the experience of running for office, I think 
a lot of people are afraid of it till they've done it once. I mean, I ran quite a few times before I was elected because I was the first. There was a real barrier in the idea that Greens don't get elected. I think that's gone away now, but it was hard. I ran in a by-election in London North Center, and then I ran at home where I used to live in Nova Scotia. And so I got elected the third time out. I moved here to Sydney, BC, which is the most wonderful place in the world to live. <laughs> anyway, I'm very blessed. But we, um, in that process, I know that for a lot of women, the idea of running is a bit scary. But once you've done it, and it's a lot to put your name on the ballot, but once you've had the experience of knocking on doors and getting to know people and doing debates, all candidate debates in your own riding, whether it's provincially or federally, that experience will stand you in good stead for event and with great good luck. And it sometimes happens. Jenica Atwin, who is our candidate in Fredericton, was her first time running federally. It wasn't her first time running. She had run provincially, but it was her first time running federally and she won the seat. So it does happen. And then you're really facing the most interesting job choice you could possibly make because working on behalf of your constituents in a parliament or a legislature is an enormous honor. And it's a constantly changing set of dynamics of public policy questions. And of course, in the Greens, we don't believe in whipping votes. So all of us as individuals have to really keep on top of all these issues and try to think, what do my constituents really want me to do on this issue? And, you know, and right now in pandemic, I think really it's the best time ever to approach issues in a nonpartisan way. You know, trying to find allies, no matter who they are, talking to ministers in the cabinet, because we're all in this together. and We've got to get through this together as Canadians and uh, letting putting partisanship to the side is, I think, the right way to go. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope people listening who are interested in the Green Party will go will go look up and, and find out more about in their area. And thank you for joining me today, Elizabeth. It was lovely to almost meet you here in the in our new world of Zoom. I give you a virtual hug, and someday we'll actually get together. We will. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. on holiday for the last couple of weeks, but I feel like you haven't because you have a lot up on the site with new movies and shows coming out. I have my obligations to our audience <laughs> and they can read it all. They can catch up. It's all on the site, but there's, there's three that we were going to talk about here today. And I got to tell you the first one, the trailer you sent me for Unhinged creeped me out so badly because I actually had something very similar like this happen to me once. I may have unwittingly cut, cut off this guy. I don't know what I did to offend him, but he followed me home, tailed me home on my car right to my door. It was horrifying. Oh. So when I saw it unhinged, I mean, all, all the right. hair on the back of my neck stood up. My advice to you is do not watch this. <laughs> the trailer. Absolutely horrifying. Let's talk about it. Russell Crowe uh, stops a woman on the road for cutting him off. She was driving really badly, but little does she know that he's just murdered two people and burned their house down. So he's in a bad state of mind. He follows her. He gets her phone somehow. It's just nerve shattering. 
at the end, I was like, <laughs> so it packs a punch. Do not watch it, Candace. <laughs> and for those who like to be scared, this is the one for you, right? Yes. Okay, so what's the other, You there was another movie you, you just were raving about. SpongeBob. The I movie. can't. What's the name of it now? SpongeBob the movie, Sponge on the Run. Oh, God, I laughed my head off. The jokes are so inside and so funny. And for all generations, like the kids aren't going to know that they've recreated the scene from Ben-Hur or that they're playing the the Barry Lyndon funeral music. My God, it's clever. And it's a slam against basically Instagrammers who depend on their looks for everything that they have. Um, The King Poseidon of the Lost City of Atlantic City is holding SpongeBob's best friend, Gary the Snail, hostage to use snail juice on his face. So I have to tell you when, you know, before we do our interview every week, you send me sort of a wrap up of what we're going to talk about. And when you were raving about SpongeBob, I thought, do I even know Anne anymore? I know. (laughs) Oh, I thought, okay, here's an animated movie. Oh God, it was rolling in my aisle. Just drop everything and go and sit. It's such a mood lifter. And I interviewed the two, two of the voices. That was hysterical too. They kept me in stitches. So that's on the site. Well, we all need a mood lifter, so I'm in on that one for sure. And what was the next one? It's called uh, Enter the Forbidden City. It's from China. And the feeling that I get, it's such a stunning, epic, gorgeous film about the history of the Peking Opera, you know, partly in the city, partly in the theater, a lot out in nature. It is so breathtaking. I have an idea. It's a bit of Chinese propaganda in light of Trump's treatment and accusations against the country. And it reflects centuries of their culture, social, moral story. And of course, the Peking Opera started 250 years ago. It starts there. It's just wonderful. The visuals are out of this world. So that's that's a keeper. And I really thought that um, the other one you listed there, Never Too Late, I thought Never Too Late looks cool. really good too. Yeah, it it is. It's about four guys trying to break out of a nursing home with some great British TV stars like Dennis Waterman and Jackie Weaver's in it too. Um, Jackie Weaver's from? She's also in Stage Mother, which I'll tell you about another time. Okay, wonderful. All right. Okay, so we've got lots coming up in the next few weeks. I remember fearing we were going to run out of entertainment, but it seems like that's not going to happen. I'm inundated with films. I can't keep up. <laughs> this is this is good news. Candace, don't watch Unhinged. I, I won't. <laughs> okay, so for all of these interviews and more, uh, they are up on the What She Said website. And Anne, you will be back next week with more great entertainment for us. I will. Thank you. Have a great one. Thank you. You too. has spent her 30-year career advocating for women. She's an entrepreneur, a single mother of a 19-year-old daughter, a leadership coach to women, and a CEO activator mentoring women-owned businesses. She was also ranked as one of Canada's top 100 female entrepreneurs on the Profit Chatelaine W100 list. After 10 years at brand strategy firm Interbrand, most recently as the Canadian CEO, Carolyn started her own firm in 2017. 
Then in 2019, she was asked to continue the legacy of the beloved women's travel magazine, Journey Woman by Erica M., daughter of the late Evelyn Hannon, the original Journey Woman, who inspired a generation of women to travel solo. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Candice. It's great to be here. So I knew Evelyn. She's near and dear to my heart. Uh, but for those listening who don't know about Evelyn's legacy, let's tell people what Journey Woman is about. Sure. Well, Evelyn was a real innovator. She she started traveling solo after her divorce, uh, similar to, to what I did, but in a time when women were not uh, involved that much in travel. So men were controlling the editorial, the advertising, all of the content was uh, was geared towards men. So she set out to change that. And here we are 30 years later, she's created an unbelievable community of women around the world who uh, have been inspired by her to travel and travel solo and do incredible things. So she's really just an inspiration. So this community of women, you reach out to routinely to get a pulse on what's happening in the travel world. So tell me about a survey you recently conducted with 1,500 women. Sure. Well, you know, Journey Woman is a magazine, but it's also a community. And when the pandemic happened in March, I reached out to them and I said, how can I help you? How can, how can this platform that we have, this platform that is all about empowering women, help you in this time? And here we are four months later. We've been doing weekly uh, virtual calls every week with our community. We've been doing seminars and webinars to help them you know, get through and think about bravery and courage and optimism. And so this goes far beyond travel. This is really about how do we support each other as women in this time. So it's been an incredible experience. And one of the things that I realized um, in having these conversations was the really, really important role of women in travel. So not only do women make most of the purchase decisions, 80, 85% around travel, not only are we the most frequent travelers, but there are many, many uh, women-owned businesses around the world that depend on tourism. So Part of what I want to do is to support those businesses and use Journey Woman as a way to do that. Yeah, I mean, I I recently did an interview uh, with the W20 Sherpa uh, this year, and I was surprised to hear how high the number of women in tourism is. It's quite a large number of women who are actually uh, propelling the tourism industry forward. So we are hurting on both sides, those who love to travel and those who want you to come visit and explore their countries. That's right. And, And the survey that we did, and we just completed a few weeks ago, is really, in my view, about how women will help save travel. And if women are not properly engaged and if they don't really trust what's going on, they will not travel. They will not support it. And that's what our survey found was that there needs to be more work done to, uh, to really engage with women and not just talk about all the things that will change, but also show evidence of that. And I think what our survey showed is, is that there are some industries you know, within the travel sector that are lacking in terms of trust. For example, airlines and insurance companies really came to the top as they've got some work to do to regain the trust of women. And without these women, without us on board, I think the travel industry will take longer to recover. So tell me about then the generational drive of of travel, uh, because you had some findings there as well. We did. And I think there's a bit of a misperception around who actually has disposable income to spend on travel, who holds the purchase decision. 
there's a quote I like, uh, Mother Nature is not a millennial, you know, and so our journey women who are typically age 55 and up, in fact, we have journey women that are in their 90s, are the ones that are out traveling. You know, they travel a lot, they spend a lot of money, and they're very experienced, they're very wise about the sector, and they're the ones I think that are going to really help change happen. So I'm a Gen Xer, we have a lot of baby boomers. This is the generation that is really going to change things in the travel sector. I, well, I mean, as a Gen Xer, I'm totally on board with that, of course. <laughs> I'm completely biased towards this generation. <laughs> so what else did you find in your survey that people should know? Well, I think, um, you know, I think the main finding is around trust. And if we can help the travel sector kind of work toward making some positive changes, you know, there's a lot of shifts happening in travel. And it is up to us as women, I think, to help make those shifts happen. A lot of the changes around the decision making process and what things are going to be important to us as women when we travel. So safety has always been important, but now we're redefining safety to think about transportation in and out of a destination. And we're thinking about what healthcare is available for us in and out of a destination. And it's almost like less about the destination itself and more about how are we getting to that destination? And then how are we going to be supported both through healthcare and insurance? And even though most of our audience, most of our community does buy travel insurance, there's still a lot of misunderstanding and uh, confusion, I think, about insurance. So we want to feel protected and safe and confident when we go on a trip. But on the other hand, there's a lot of complexity that's arisen because of COVID and even before COVID. I agree. And, you know, I was surprised, actually, I received a a refund from my travel insurance, a COVID refund that came through recently, totally unexpected, did not expect that. But I'm still unsure, am I insured if I leave the country to go travel? Because there are places you can travel to now uh, that are open for business, like Jamaica is open for business, Grenada is. So these kinds of places, I would love to go, but I don't know if I'm insured there yet. So I have to find those answers out myself. But let's talk about local travel right now, because I think that is the focus Mm -hmm. What are you hearing from your partners in terms of places to go locally that are really um, meeting the needs of women? I usually travel every week of the year. So this has been a, a bit of a frustrating time for me. And uh, I think probably last year, I probably did 15 or 20 trips. So, you know, I was hardly ever home. But this is an opportunity for us to travel at home and to explore our own backyard. So that's a theme that we've been working on for the past few weeks. I had the pleasure of interviewing David Crombie a few weeks ago and talking about the secrets of Toronto from a former mayor, which was amazing. And tomorrow, actually, I'm leaving on a, a trip and my editor and I are going all across Ontario and we're going to stay at very unique places like teepees and yurts and tree houses and houseboats and cabins and glamping. And But more importantly, we're going to test out our new travel safety criteria and see how that does. So we're going to look at not just the places that we're going, but also our small uh, resorts and hotels and Airbnbs. Are they actually following through on the commitments that they're making on their websites around safety and hygiene? And what things would we recommend to help improve that? How do you need to pack differently? So we'll be in Bob Cajun, we'll be in Algonquin Park, we'll be in uh, little tiny towns all over the province, just trying to explore and, and really embrace this time because there's still a lot we can learn. Even if we're not getting on a plane and going somewhere, 
I find the planning process is sometimes just as exciting as the actual doing. So, And I think uh, it's important to recognize that people the world over want to flock to Canada. Yes. We are an amazing country. We have incredible things in our backyard that, you know, we really shouldn't be getting up close with. <clears throat> so people are going to want to follow along with this. How can they do that? So most of our uh, footage of this trip is going to be on Instagram, journeywoman underscore original. And then we'll also be doing future articles and editorial on our website, on our Facebook page. And all of everything is journeywoman. So we're journeywoman.com, we're journeywoman Twitter, and we're journeywoman on Facebook. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me today, Carolyn. Thank you, Candice. My pleasure. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. when it comes to wearing masks during this pandemic, yet we are still seeing a lot of resistance to wearing them. This isn't the first time in our history, though, that the public has been required to adapt to health mandates. So joining me today to discuss is Hilary Bergseeker, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Waterloo. Welcome to the show, Hilary. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I guess the first question is, why are we seeing such a resistance to wearing masks? That's a great question. And I, I would say the core psychological motivation that relates to that is something we call reactance. This is a, a natural human tendency to sort of want to do the opposite when we're told we have to do something. So fairly basic, commonplace um, motivation. Anyone who's ever had children could probably relate. But there are strategies to circumvent that, to kind of overcome that natural resistance to being told to do something that constrains our freedoms. So yes, because what we're seeing a lot right now, I feel, is there are just sort of two tribes, those who will wear masks and those who won't. And they're both sort of shouting each other, which is really cementing the positions. So if we want people to wear masks, shaming and shouting at them is probably not going to get that done, correct? Yes, that, that is correct. I mean, I've heard humorous anecdotes about people paying their kids 50 cents every time they loudly say, Mom, why is that person not wearing a mask? Or right, things like that. But as a scientist, I wouldn't recommend that strategy. I think as soon as it becomes an us versus them, as soon as it becomes divisive, you're going to see compliance levels drop. So in general, when we're trying to motivate good public health decision making, we want to appeal to people's core values. We also want to appeal to overarching goals that bind us all together. So connecting this to the idea that Canadians are caring for each other as fellow Canadians, that this is a a patriotic, loving action to take, that especially for mask wearing, as opposed to maybe hand washing or other procedures, there's an extremely strong component of care for others. Um, that the, the biggest benefit may be to, be to those around you, to those you love, to your neighbor, and so forth. So the important, I think, step we need to be taking here is to not try to point fingers and label and make this a sort of a tribal or political thing in the way that it has unfortunately been politicized in some other countries, um, but to really try to focus on what unites us here and why it's worth the inconvenience or discomfort of a mouse to do the right thing by each other. 
And it was brought to my attention that when we brought in seatbelt rules and when, you know, we were uh, battling HIV, we were looking at the same sort of um, resistance in the public to new measures. I feel what's different now is maybe the internet and sort of that amplification of the messaging on both sides. Do you feel that's having an impact here at all? Absolutely. There's clear data showing that lowered trust in science, for example, is a component in a lot of the resistance to following public health recommendations. If people don't trust the experts or don't trust the leaders, um, or if some leaders in some cases are giving unscientific guidance to their followers, um, that obviously interferes with appropriate adoption of public health behaviors. It's also important to think about honesty. I mean, part of the issue that we've had we've seen this in Canada, you know, even with the World Health Organization, is that there's been mixed messaging on masks that early on in a desire to sort of prevent hoarding and to preserve a scarce resource for healthcare workers who need it most, there was a lot of sort of doubt or misinformation about the necessity of masks for just everyday use. And we're sort of reaping the, the unfortunate rewards of that now that that uncertainty, of course, takes hold in many people's minds. Combine that with the, the physical discomfort and inconvenience of having to procure and clean and so forth a mask, and you're, of course, going to get lower than complete mask wearing compliance. Right. It's like when the newspaper publishes a story and then they, they later on publish a retraction. Far more people saw that first story than saw the retraction. So once it's cemented, people just will remember it that way. So going forward then, what are some tips for getting people to get on board with mask wearing? What do you suggest? I think one tip is to make it identity expressive. So as I was saying before, appealing to our common values is important. If you're a Christian, you might wear a mask because you love your neighbor. You know, that is a core biblical teaching. If you're a liberal, you might wear a mask because care for others is one of the core moral foundations for modern progressives and liberals. If you're a patriot or someone who really feels a strong sense of national identity, you might be wearing a mask because you want to protect your you know, fellow citizens and residents so your country can be a sort of a safer place and not a hot spot. There are lots of different motivations that might lead people to engage in mask wearing, but I think focusing on superordinate shared identities, focusing on evaluating you know, elders or the vulnerable among us, there have been plenty of other cases where people are willing to rally to the cause to help others, and we need to focus on ways to frame mask wearing as a behavior that expresses our core values. If a mask can be branded with a message, you know, either a flag of a region that's important to you, a mascot of a sports team, anything that lets you feel like it's at least a little bit stylish or self-expressive or not that you're just complying with a, you know, unpleasant government mandate is going to boost people's sense of well-being and commitment to wearing masks. I love it. So if people want to know more, is there a resource you recommend people could maybe go read more about ways to convince people? I think that a lot of this research comes out of persuasion literature about how, you know, how to change people's minds through um, making strong arguments. So giving people the evidence, some people are going to be persuaded by that. For others, it will be more about seeing an attractive communicator, someone they admire, putting out there the reason to do it, seeing that their favorite celebrity wearing a mask may be the turning point for some individuals. So I think we know from psychology that what changes people's minds depends on how invested people feel, how much information they're looking for. You know, that you could find in any undergraduate social psychology textbooks. It's not something that's a hard to find or mysterious type resource. 
And I, I think that just in general, the idea of focusing on overarching goals is something we know from a lot of work on, sort of diver on diversity and challenges of diversity, how to bring people together. Um, so there isn't one core document I would point you to because this is wisdom gathered over thousands of different surveys and experiments that try to help us understand how to change minds. And the, I think the most important feature there is making it a norm. A norm is like an unspoken standard. And as soon as people see everyone around them wearing a mask, you know, that's going to be the point at which it crosses a certain tipping point and this becomes a near universal behavior. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Hillary. This is great. And I do believe that we will get there. So thanks again for joining me. Absolutely. I'm very happy to do so. Thank you. Is everything has changed. Start to Finish was born out of a vision that the effects of the cycle of child poverty could be broken in Canada by providing ongoing educational support to Canada's at-risk children throughout their school years, nurturing mind, body, and social health so they would be empowered to graduate and succeed. Joining me now to discuss is Brian Warren, social entrepreneur, founder, and executive director of Start to Finish and Michelle Ray, Director of Volunteer and Community Relations for Start to Finish. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brian and Michelle. Well, it's a privilege, Candice, and you know, we enjoy what you do, and thank you for having us because this is a wonderful platform to be able to just share and talk about what's happening and what's new. Well, you know, I want to know a little bit about how you started this. So can you just give me a little bit of background about that, Brian? Well, you know what, I, I don't want to use a bucket full of words to express a spoonful of thought, but when I uh, look at the early beginnings of Start to Finish, my mom was a special education teacher. And uh, because she worked in, in education all of her life, and my dad working in the area of aeronautical engineering with NASA, I was always taught to be a lateral thinker and always give back. And after... Uh, playing professional football for a number of years and winning a couple of championships and giving back myself to Special Olympics and a number of other things, I wanted to make a difference because I looked at a lot of the, the different children that were in the communities that I played across, even in the CFL, eight years in the CFL. And what I saw that they were blocks apart, but they were worlds away. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in, in Vancouver, if you're in Hamilton, if you're in Boyle Street and in Edmonton, you know, and I played in so many different areas, but I saw that they had dreams and they had vision, but there was a difficulty connecting that together. And with education being one of the platforms that I've seen in my own life, I recognize that although it is not equal, we could make it equitable and we could give every child the opportunity and empower them to become role models for change. So we started off a very simple uh, strategy by not only giving them the tools to succeed, but also developing a system, a pathway of hope, where you can literally walk down that pathway and access resources that will allow a child that is living in a racialized community and also at or below the poverty line to achieve their ultimate potential and their goals. So Start to Finish was born. We started giving out backpacks and it starts off our pathway of hope, but it also moves into our 
our scholarship program and our running and reading club program, a 32 week program. We'll talk a little bit more about that as well as our mentoring and physical fitness. So there's a multi-literacy platform going on here, Candice, because what you have is not only physical literacy, you got numeracy and also academic literacy and a lot of those things embedded and what I learned with professional athletics and what I also learned from my mom, because in special education, she said, they're the special population of the world. And I see the same thing in the children that we deal with as well. I imagine the need for this was, was great pre-COVID. Michelle, what's the situation like now that we're, you know, five, six months into this pandemic? Yeah, it's still very much needed and it has taken on a different shape. Um, we were talking a little bit about how with our programs, we run through parallel with the school year and we went on break for March break and we didn't end up coming back. But our volunteers, they quickly pivoted because we know the population that we work with, they need the encouragement, they need the mentorship, the different things that we do in our program, the words of the day, affirmation for the kids, helping them to reach their goals and their targets. Although we were uh, separated physically, they still needed that emotionally as well. So our volunteers, they um, quickly pivoted, like I said, they got on the phone, we made calls to the children, the parents were so thankful that the relationship was continuing and we were able to move them and to the end of the school year and then also eventually launch our summer program, which we're doing right now. Is this all being done, obviously, online then for the summer? Yes, that's right. So it's online. We have a virtual summer program that we're doing. Our coaches are on there. We have weekly challenges, continuing to do words of the day, things that they can do in their own neighborhood. Obviously, um, practicing social distancing, nature walks, numeracy, as Brian mentioned, and the coaches do weekly uh, shout outs and challenges with them as well live on YouTube. So Brian, this sounds like a very holistic approach to keeping kids in school. You're covering their physical health, their mental health, their their education. What are the ramifications when kids don't stay in school? What are the impacts when they drop out? Well, you know, that's that's pretty staggering. And it's a great question, Candice, because when you look at the amount of, of resources that it takes, and I'm just going to take one step back with that, when a child does not learn how to read by grade three and how they continue to fall back in the learning gap. And we're talking about this disruptive cycle of dysfunction. They keep going further and further back. Summer always presents different challenges. And not only does it impact our economy, it impacts also policing, it impacts the area of healthcare, it impacts so many areas. So either we're going to invest now or we have to invest later. And so what we find, a little bit of love goes a long way. So it is a holistic approach. You you hit it on the head. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a drive-by program because I think a drive-by program like a drive-by shooting at least people disoriented and confused. But what this is, is a process that continues to bring them from grade one all the way, if you'll look at, you know, those little cutouts that we used to do and you see the kids holding hands until they graduate and they become a valuable contributor. And that's meaning culinary school, mechanic school or university. But we've got so many graduates that have come through our program. And, you know, I think of a young lady named Paula and she just comes to my mind and she was a heavy set uh, young lady, ne- not necessarily into the athletic part of it, but she was she was a bright girl. But she felt that she couldn't participate because she didn't have necessarily the build and really the gear. 
Well, we began to start working with her and she became one of our greatest junior coaches. And after the 32 week run, there is a five kilometer challenge. It's not necessarily to, let's say, get over the hurdle, but it's to knock the hurdle down. And, you know, with that, there's a Jeopardy challenge, which is 60% reading, 40% in the running, and it's a team component. Now, the last person coming into the stadium in, in York University was Paula. And, you know, she didn't do it the year before, but she worked and worked. We worked together. And I'm telling you, there wasn't a dry in the place. And I had a gummy lump in my throat. And that young lady is now giving back and helping others. So it's a caring coalition and a caring community. And that's how we're seeing not only change. And the only thing that changed in that community was a program that came in and said, we care. Because I don't believe any child has ever gone wrong when someone's genuinely cared about them. So it's really amazing to see how much a little love goes a long way. Incredible. I really feel on a personal level that this program is so needed right now. Structure just got thrown off the bandwagon in March, as we all know. Kids are feeling, you know, disconnected, disoriented with this reality. So I really feel that your program is so needed. So Michelle, if people want to volunteer or if they'd like to get their kids involved, where's the best place for them to go and find out more? So the best place to go is our website, starttofinishonline.org. And uh, we have different tabs there with our locations as well as a button where you can click to sign up to volunteer. We will be continuing our mentorship into the school year. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at starts, S2F sorry, online. Okay, wonderful. Uh, Brian, I hope you will come back again and keep us up to date on the progress and how things are going in 2020, the year that just keeps on giving. <laughs> I I really do want to hear more about how this program goes forward. I just feel it's education is the key to it all, essentially. Well, Candice, you're you're so right. And, you know, I just want to say a big thank you to yourself and and those that have this platform and allow us. You know, Amgen, uh, STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math made it possible that they're a lot of our mentors. And anyone that has a little bit of time, we welcome that. But we're making a difference here. And this is Canadian-born, so we're seeing a huge difference. Thank you for all you do, and thank you for the time. Wonderful. We're going to throw up all the social links on the video we share on social, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Looking forward to it. with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidradio.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify for extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.